Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with global temperature records being broken as heat domes across four continents bake the planet from Rome, where today's high was 110 degrees, to Phoenix, Arizona, where you could fry eggs on the pavement. We'll discuss how the fossil fuel industry, now making record profits, is backsliding on promises to address global warming, having massively profited from selling a dangerous product, and now innocent people and governments across the globe are paying the price for their recklessness. Joining us is Naomi Oreskes, a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. She served as a consultant to the United States Environmental Protection Agency and was a consultant to the U.S. Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. And her books include Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscure the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, and Why Trust Science. Her latest book, co-authored with Eric Conway, is The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. Then we'll look into an alarming article in Monday's New York Times, Trump and Allies Forge Plans to Increase Presidential Power in 2025, which reveals a $22 million presidential transition operation project 2025 at the Heritage Foundation involving former Trump officials like Stephen Miller, who want to radically strengthen the power of the White House and limit the independence of federal agencies so that Donald Trump can become a dictator and do what he promised to, quote, demolish the deep state and throw off the sick political class that hates our country. Joining us is Peter Strauss, the Betts Professor of Law Emeritus at Columbia Law School, where he taught constitutional law, regulation, administrative law, and public policy for over four decades. He spent three years as an attorney in the office of the Solicitor General and served as the first general counsel of the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission and is the author of the award-winning essay, Overseer or the Decider, the President in Administrative Law. Then finally, we will speak with Aziz Huck, a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. We will discuss what it would mean if Trump controlled the IRS, the FDA, the FTC, the EPA, etc., and most importantly, the DOJ, and who would benefit from the deconstruction of the administrative state. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Naomi Oreskes, who's a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. She serves as a consultant to the United States Environmental Protection Agency and was a consultant to the United States Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. Her books include Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscure the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, and Why Trust Science. And her latest book, co-authored with Eric Conway, is The Big Myth. How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. Welcome to Background Briefing, Naomi Oreskes. Thanks, Ian. It's nice to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Naomi. And, and the free market, when it comes to big oil, is literally cooking us at the moment. If anybody or any entity can be blamed for so much of what is heating the planet, that has to be big oil and the fossil fuel companies, I mean, that's a fair statement, is it not? Yes, I think it is fair. I mean, I I think there are some people who would take issue with it, but I think it is fair because, as we've shown in our work, we know that the fossil fuel industry has known since at least the 1970s and arguably even earlier that scientists were predicting that burning fossil fuels would warm the planet, that it would be serious, that it would be consequential, 
And it wasn't just academic scientists who warned them about that. Um, as we've shown in our work and also journalists like the journalists at Inside Climate News and the Los Angeles Times have shown their own scientists, scientists inside ExxonMobil, uh, scientists inside Shell, scientists inside Total, were telling their managers, this product is going to warm the planet and it's going to have really serious effects. But instead of taking steps to address it, to diversify their business model or to invest in renewable energy, instead they invested in disinformation. And we know, and again, this was the subject of my book with Eric Conway, Emergence of Doubt, the fossil fuel industry has spent 30 years trying to block climate action by claiming that we didn't really know if this was a problem, the scientists were exaggerating the threat. But what we've seen today, this week, this month, this year, this decade, is that scientists did not exaggerate the threat. If anything, they understated the threat. Uh, they were conservative in their statements. And now we are seeing everything that scientists predicted and more is coming true. So as we swelter, in fact, the whole planet swelters, what can we do about it, though, Naomi? I mean, in other words, how do we boycott their product? This is the what seems intractable at the moment because people, well, as we speak, yeah. millions well, of people are going to the yeah. pump now and they're filling up their cars. Well, boycotts are difficult for a product like this, which is the whole economy is structured around fossil fuels. So boycotts can be a powerful tool. Um, I've been personally having a one-woman boycott against ExxonMobil for a long time, but I, I know that's not really going to make a difference, but it makes me feel better. <laughs> but, I mean, boycotts can be a powerful tool. The boycott of sugar was a powerful tool uh, in educating people about slavery in the Caribbean in the late 18th and early 19th century. So I don't discount boycotts, but I think in this case, because we live in an economy that is so structured around fossil fuels, and if we want to do anything, most of us can't help but use fossil fuels, we really have to think about political and economic action. And that means the private sector has to step up to the plate now. I mean, one of the things that frankly breaks my heart is how whenever there's been climate legislation on the Hill, there's, whenever there's been a possibility to really do something meaningful, whenever there's been a possibility of meaningful action on the state level, we see the fossil fuel industry mobilizing, spending huge amounts of money, hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars, to prevent meaningful climate policies. And the fossil fuel industry is not the whole private sector. It's just one piece of it. But most of the rest of the private sector have frankly been sitting on their hands, just keeping their mouths shut, keeping their lips sealed, and not stepping up to the plate. So this is a moment for the private sector to step up to the plate and say, the fossil fuel industry does not represent the interests of the economy as a whole. It does not represent the interests of the American people or the people of the globe. And we really need to do business differently. Um, and, and that is something the private sector could do. And the very fact that the right wing has been going after attacking companies that are actually trying to do the right thing, say, like with the so-called ESG principles, environment, social, and governance principles, tells us that it really does matter what the private sector does. Then, of course, the other part is what we as citizens can do. And the reality is that even though the climate crisis has been on with us for a while, the vast majority of the American people have not really been mobilized on this issue. So my hope that the silver lining of the present terrible situation is that people will say, oh my gosh, this really is bad. We now see it, we understand it, and we have to demand meaningful political action. Well, the problem, of course, is that the oil companies are making record profits, and BP scaled back an earlier goal to lower its emissions by 35% by 2030. Now it's saying it'll do 20 to 30% instead. ExxonMobil withdrew funding from, from its much ballyhooed effort to use algae to create low-carbon fuel. Shell's announced that it won't increase its investments in renewable energy, etc., uh, etc. Et so is there any way you can penalize these big companies for all of the greenwashing they've done, telling us how much they care about the environment, when well, now they're telling yeah, us, no, that we can't do it? Sorry. Right. Well, sure, there's a lot that people can do. So first of all, um, Congress could pass a windfall profits tax. We've had that in the past. We could have it again. And that money could be used to accelerate the transition to renewable energy plus storage. And polls consistently show the American people like renewable energy. They think we should have more of it. But they worry a little bit about the cost. Now, most of that worry is because of 
industry disinformation because the reality is that renewable energy is now cheaper than most other forms of energy in most places in the world. So the cost is not nearly as bad as a lot of us think it is, but because the reality is we do worry about the cost and because there are upfront costs associated with any new investment, any new infrastructure, a windfall profits tax that was dedicated specifically and completely 100% to infrastructure to support renewable energy, to charging stations, uh, to energy storage. All of this technology exists now. We don't need a miracle. We don't need scientists to invent some new magic technology. We just need to build up the investment in renewable energy. And that could be done tomorrow. If President Biden would declare a climate emergency, say I'm calling for a windfall profits tax, I'm calling for any, every penny of that, not to expand the government, not to expand other programs, but specifically to address the climate crisis. I think he could mobilize political support for that. Well, recently I did an, a segment on this program about hate mm-hmm. and how it's become into our mainstream in our political discourse. And the example I gave was just a few days ago, Senator Kerry, Biden's climate envoy, who was on his way to China, where he's now meeting with Chinese officials trying to figure out what both countries, the two leading economies in the world, can do about stopping global warming and stopping the emissions of uh, CO2. So he was having a hearing before a House committee prior to going to China. And Congressman Perry from Pennsylvania is one of the guys that had the... uh, Allowed a tour of some of the uh, January sixth insurrectionists to tour the con- to tour the Capitol before the insurrection. He gets up there and has these charts, which he says proves that there's no such thing as global warming. I mean, this is happening literally when there are record yeah. temperatures across the country. I mean, you'd have to really be <laughs> an ostrich burying its head doesn't begin to describe the idiocy of this man. So he gives this presentation. Kerry then says, look, you know, 95% of the countries in the world accept that this is a reality, and so do the majority of scientists. And he said, they're all grifters, and you, sir, are a grift. What is this man thinking? What are these denialists thinking? Where do they get this passionate ignorance from? Well, I can't say what's in his head, and there's a mix of motivations and a mix, I think, of people who are frankly, just lying. They know that what they're saying isn't true, and people who have sort of persuaded themselves. But, you know, this, this is really, this is what I spent the last 20 years studying, right? What, is, what motivates this? These people are so dug into denial that now they can't get themselves out of a corner. So I, I think the vast majority of Republicans in Congress understand that climate change is real. I mean, these people are not stupid people, and they're highly educated, and they have highly educated staffs. But they've really backed themselves into a corner. They've dug themselves into denial, and they don't know how to get out of it. And part of the reason they don't know how to get out of it is the topic of my new book. So if I may make a shameless plug for the big myth, what we show in that book is that conservatives in this country, conservative business leaders and the conservative wing of what used to be a more diverse Republican Party, um, really built up an ideology about the free market. They constructed an ideological framework in which markets were good, government was bad, and so we should do everything possible to limit the size of the government, particularly the federal government, and allow free markets to reign. And this ideology was developed mostly by very self-interested business leaders who used it as an excuse to prevent government regulation of dangerous industries. But it was taken up by other people as well who bought the argument that There's this sort of inextricable link between democracy and capitalism, that free markets protect political freedom. And I believe that a lot of conservatives in this country really believe that. I don't think it's really true. I think it's a mistaken understanding of history. But I think that a lot of people kind of bought that argument. And, you know, our book was just reviewed in The New Yorker by Louis Menon, and it's it's a big, great review. It's a lot of great attention to the book. But I think he kind of misses this essential point as well that if you live in New York, if you live in Los Angeles, if you live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's easy to think, oh, we all understand the failures of capitalism. We get it. This is a market failure. Climate change proves you can't just trust the free market. But I can tell you, because I've spent a lot of time in Utah and Nebraska and Kansas, um, a lot of other parts of this country, a lot of people really do believe that if we just leave things to the marketplace, it will all get sorted out. 
Now, we know that that's not true. Climate change proves that it's not true because the market has had 40 years to figure out the solution to this problem, and it has failed miserably. But I think that this partly helps explain why it's been so hard to get movement on the conservative side of the political spectrum, because what you have there is a mix of people who are, frankly, outright liars, people who are in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry. There are definitely some of those but also people who have bought into the myth of the magic of the marketplace and who just, even though they recognize that climate change is happening, they just can't see their way around a good solution because all of the good solutions involve some kind of government action. So given what you've just told us, Naomi, that many of or a lot of these Republicans in the House and Senate who are working to stop any progress on climate change, even though Biden did manage to pass these important bills that are now coming into effect uh, to spur alternative energy and, uh, and electric cars, etc. Is there a way to help these people come out of the closet and face reality? Well, that's a really great question. And, you know, I would have thought if anybody could do it, it would be John Kerry, because, I mean, I've had the pleasure of spending time with the former Secretary of State. He's a very gracious man. He's a very polite man. Um, he's a very kind person, which isn't something you say about all politicians. So you would think that if there was any possibility, and now it's clearly the moment, but as we've said, you know, these folks are so dug in, and, you, and we've all witnessed what's happened to the Republican Party, you know, in the last few years. So this is really a moment for people to stand up and be counted. And that's why, again, I come back to the private sector. I mean, we know that there are CEOs in the private sector who are not, um, I don't know what's the word I want to use. I mean, they're not Trumpists. They do believe in democracy. They know climate change is real. Many of them have companies that depend on science, like Google and Facebook, depend on science and engineering. So I really think that if these people could step up to the plate and say, look, the time has come to, you know, discard denial. It's time to move forward. Let's figure out solutions to this problem that can work for everyone. I think there will be some Republicans, like the gentleman you just mentioned, who are hopeless. <laughs> you know, some people just are hopeless. But, you know, politics doesn't require unanimity, right? No major political change in this country has ever happened because we all agreed. It happened because people built coalitions that had enough agreement to be able to move forward. And, you know, in our book, we talk quite a bit about FDR and how he addressed the Great Depression. You know, large sectors of the business community fought FDR tooth and nail, but other sectors recognized that the Great Depression was a crisis of unprecedented proportion, and they did work with FDR. And so I think that's a model for where we are now. If we could get um, you know, Democrats, independents, disillusioned Republicans, because we know they're, they're out there, they're mostly sitting on their hands, but we know they're there, um, and business leaders to work together, I mean, that's 70% of America, right? The hardcore Trumpist wing of the Republican Party is not more than 30% of the United States. And so that means we have a lot to work with, but it means all of us who are in the 70% just need to really up our game and do a lot more. Now is really the moment because, as you said, the whole world is sweltering. Um, places that people thought were safe, we are now seeing are not safe. There was a big piece in the paper the other day about Vermont and all these people who moved to Vermont because they thought it would be a safe haven. Not clear what they thought it would be a safe haven from, but, you know, lots of people think of Vermont as this beautiful, safe, wonderful place. Um, and last week, the state capitol was under several feet of water. So just in closing, Naomi, we talked earlier about the greenwashing from the big fossil fuel companies and the oil companies and how maybe that could be banned or outlawed. One thing that might be practical, given what you just said about, because the most powerful, richest companies in the world now are, are Amazon and Apple and Alphabet, uh, Google, etc. Used to be ExxonMobil was always the richest, most powerful company in the planet, but now they've been overtaken by Silicon Valley. So you've got those people, you've got the insurance companies who have a, have a dog in this fight, could there be a coalition of more enlightened corporations to do counter greenwashing and and really spell it out and what the alarm well, is and sound the alarm? Yeah, I think there absolutely could be, and I just think that could be so powerful if that happened. I mean, if scientists, corporate leaders, 
political leaders work together, I think that could be a very, very powerful coalition. And so I hope, I hope there's somebody from Alphabet listening to us today. <laughs> because I do think, you know, as we said, I mean, the evidence is so overwhelming. Everything that scientists predicted has come true and more. There's just no question that what is happening now is real, and we know it's causing it. It's caused by all the carbon dioxide and methane that we've put in the atmosphere, most of which comes from burning fossil fuels. There's just no doubt about that. And so this really is a moment for people, uh, you know, it's the time for all good men, right? And women right. too, and non-binary. Well, we are, this program airs on KPFA in Berkeley in the, in the Bay Area, which covers Silicon Valley. So we live in hope. And I thank you for joining us, Naomi Oreskes. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure. And again, I'll be speaking with Naomi Oreskes, who's a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. She serves as a consultant to the United States Environmental Protection Agency and was a consultant to the U.S. Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board. Her books include Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, and Why Trust Science. And her latest book, co-authored with Eric Conway, is The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into an alarming article in Monday's New York Times. Trump and allies forge plans to increase presidential power in 2025, which is aimed at strengthening the power of the White House and limiting the independence of federal agencies so that Donald Trump can become dictator. I don't want to set the world on fire I just want to start a flame in your heart. In my heart, I have. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Peter Strauss, the Betts Professor of Law Emeritus at Columbia Law School, where he taught constitutional law, regulation, administrative law and public policy for over four decades. He spent three years as an attorney in the office of the Solicitor General, served as the first general counsel of the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and is the author of the award-winning essay, Overseer or the Decider, the President in Administrative Law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Strauss. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're quoted in an article in... uh, Monday's New York Times, which has gotten a lot of attention, Trump and allies forge plans to increase presidential power in 2025. And we already have the combination of an activist Supreme Court that seems to be certainly overruling a number of congressional prerogatives, particularly substituting the nine justices' opinions and authority over the expertise of government, and we could talk about that, but the combination of of an activist Supreme Court and an activist executive branch is bad enough, but then it becomes even more frightening when it's in the hands of Donald Trump. So how do you see us now as a country heading into what seems to be a very authoritarian struggle between democracy and autocracy? Well, I think the stakes are very high, uh, and they are significantly stakes about the understanding of our Constitution, um, which has its own implications for legality. I, I maybe ought to say, or clarify, if you like, that the, the Supreme Court's actions limiting, limiting agency actions, whether EPA or OSHA most recently, President Biden's um, debt relief, uh, well, it was the Department of Education's actually debt relief plan, um, is concerning to many, uh, including me, um, because it so limits the flexibility of government actors to respond to changing circumstances. Um, Basically, what the court has been saying is, that Congress needs to be clear that they have authorized agencies to deal with certain situations that come up. And it's in the nature of legislation to be rather general. Um, and 
when the court acts as it does, it constrains any possibility for government to respond. And that's not just the EPA or OSHA. That would also be the ability of Donald Trump to respond uh, if he should take some action that they would find to be outside of the authority that Congress had, had granted. Um, that's not what concerns me. What concerns me, the clawing away that I spoke about at agency independence, is what has also been a trend in the Supreme Court in recent years, to deny Congress the authority to create officials or institutions that are at some distance from presidential control um, by saying, uh, in effect, that the president must have the right to remove any official of the federal of the um, executive branch for any reason um, that he chooses. Um, that creates a level of political control, which, in my view, is quite in inconsistent with the arrangements that our Constitution makes, and as it is also with congressional judgments that, from my perspective, are wholly constitutional. So the article in Monday's New York Times, which a lot of people have felt is quite alarming, and that the article titled Trump and, the, and Allies Forge Plans to Increase Presidential Power in 2025, is based on, upon the fact that there's such a thing as Project 2025. It's a $22 million presidential transition operation preparing policies and plans for Donald Trump's re-election. It's being run through the Heritage Foundation and involves a lot of former Trump aides, including uh, Stephen Miller and others. And it is basically quite unabashed about uh, its plans to accrue enormous power in, in the hands of Donald Trump to be able to essentially control the FTC, FDA, most government uh, departments. And we have in Donald Trump, somebody who has talked a lot on the campaign trail, uh, vilifying government and what he considers to be the deep state within the government. Uh, at a rally in Michigan recently, he said, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out communists, Marxists, and fascists, and we will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. So that sounds like a declaration of war on the civil service, is it not? Uh, yes, uh, on the civil service uh, and on judgments Congress has made about the appropriate distance of some institutions from immediate presidential control. Um, and I, I think there are two elements that are involved in the thinking that you're counseling. And, and I should say that these didn't originate with Donald Trump. One can go back and find in Vice President Cheney's um, actions when he was vice president, uh, similar kinds of attitudes. Uh, and before him, even as far back as Richard Nixon, um, one found a notion that the president was entitled to decide, to control. Um, and in some ways, that notion, in the psychological sense, is resisted only by officials who understand that Congress has given them duties, not the president, and that it is their responsibility, not the president's responsibility, to decide those matters. There's a not terribly um, prominent tape of Richard Nixon um, uh, uh, talking with his aides about the need to delay the um, installation of airbags. Uh, and uh, go call Secretary of Transportation Volpe and tell him this isn't to happen. Uh, and then there was a conversation with Volpe, also recorded, uh, in which Volpe said, well, I'll talk to my lawyers, but, you know, the president needs to recognize I have a duty here. And that's the issue, from that, or th that's one of the two issues uh, from my perspective. 
that the duties lie with the people that Congress has invested with the power to act and not with the president. The president is for sure an overseer. The Constitution, our Constitution, entitles him to ask everybody in the executive branch for a written opinion how they might choose to exercise the duties that Congress has conferred on them. And obviously, that opens up possibilities for negotiation, for compromise, and the like. What it does not open up is a power of decision. Uh, in an earlier draft of the Constitution, the one that went to the committee that returned Article Two, as we now have it, there was an explicit statement that the president has the right to decide any matter, whatever his advisors may suggest, whatever his cabinet may suggest to him. That statement was dropped, and in its place is the language that I more or less quoted to you, giving him the power to require the written opinion of the heads of the executive department of the duties that they have, anticipating that Congress would create executive departments and give them duties. And then the president's relationship to them was not to be commander-in-chief. He's commander-in-chief of the military, but rather someone who could oversee what they did, who could ask them for written opinions about how they were going to exercise their duties and, and negotiate with them and possibly take some consequence. So that's, that's one element. The other element is, well, what authority does the president have over the person holding office? Can he just send him home? Um, when FDR took office, uh, he wrote to a commissioner of the Federal Trade Commissioner, a commission, a federal, a Commissioner Humphreys, saying, well, our politics differ, and so I'm removing you from office. And Humphreys sued, saying he had the right to continue in office. The president didn't have the right to remove him for political reasons because Congress had said that he was to hold office for his term of five years unless he had been removed for cause. And having different politics is not cause. Well, Humphreys died before the matter could get to the Supreme Court, so it was just his widow suing for back salary. But what the Supreme Court said was that Congress did have the power to create this kind of office where People could hold office subject to the possibility of removal for cause. Um, and that is clearly in the gun sights of many of the members of the current Supreme Court, if not all of them. Uh, and giving that kind of authority to any president, and certainly to Donald Trump, um, would, in my judgment, uh, be a terrible mistake. So is the U.S. Constitution clear about the separations of powers? Did, did the Founding Fathers leave some wiggle room, some ambiguity? And in the case of Donald Trump and this effort to provide him this blueprint of extraordinary amounts of power over federal agencies and over the government itself and over the civil service, are they making this stuff up or is this somehow a part of the ambiguity? Well, from my perspective, they are making it up, although uh, clearly there are arguments around uh, to the effect that, th that they are not. Um, and I've tried to describe the basis for that perspective. Uh, one, uh, that the drafters of the Constitution did not carry forward what was in an earlier draft, an explicit presidential right of decision. Uh, and uh, second, that there's this contrast between the power that the president has over the military, he is commander-in-chief, and the power, the only power he is given besides nomination uh, over domestic government, which is to ask for a written opinion of some official that Congress has authorized to do something, how that official means to do what Congress has authorized that official to do. I don't find that ambiguous in the least. Um, people 
making the other argument tend to jump from the fact that we have a single president, and we do have a single president who is vested with the executive power, to his obligation, and it's his obligation, not his power, to see to it that the laws be faithfully executed. Well, one of the things they omit is that word be. He's to see to it that the laws be faithfully executed, that is, as if by somebody else. Uh, And the consequence is that if he thought he could do what Congress has authorized someone else to do, he is not faithfully executing the laws. Hmm. So who benefits then from deconstructive the administrative state, which is what Stephen Bannon originally described, and clearly it's inherent in everything that Trump and the people that are are involved in drafting up this blueprint for how he will govern in 2025, assuming he is elected. Well, from my perspective, by and large, the administrative state is here. That is, government is here in the domestic sense, not just to accomplish its own things, have a post office, for example, but also to protect us from other large forces in the economy, which have become corporate forces, by and large. Uh, And that's what regulation does. Uh, What regulation does is constrain private actors who would otherwise be free to do whatever the damn pleased. Uh, and leaving those private actors free to do whatever they damn please is leaving them free to impose on the rest of us the kinds of consequences that Congress has frequently said, no, you can't do that. Um, Employers, you have to provide your workers with a safe workplace. Now, we're not going to say every detail about what a safe workplace is. Here's an Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and they have the responsibility to formulate regulations. Uh, and uh, creating safe workplaces, or similarly for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission when I was general counsel. They're the ones that have that obligation. And when the court says, oh, Congress didn't say this clearly enough, they are denying OSHA or the NRC the kinds of flexibility that they need to meet circumstances that Congress or details that Congress could not have anticipated, didn't anticipate. And when they say that nobody holds office outside of the possibility of presidential dismissal, they are opening whatever decisions do get made to a level of political control that if the government is in the hands of the richest in the country, of corporates and corporations and the like, is thoroughly is dangerous to the rest of us. Well, we already have, because of the Citizens United decision, an enormous amount of power, money power, in our government and in our electing both government officials and nominating people at the Supreme Court through enormous amounts of dark money spending. And there's no question... Yeah, you've named another nasty thing that the Supreme Court has done to us. Right. But I'm saying the effects are that it has empowered the plutocracy in this country to have inordinate amount of power over government, and that would seem to be, they would seem to be the beneficiaries of Stephen Bannon's idea of deconstructing the administrative state. I'm talking about people I, like the I, Koch brothers. I, I don't, don't disagree, although, you know, for the Koch brothers on one side, there's George Soros on the other. It's not that every rich person in the world is a David uh, Koch, or for that matter, a George Soros. Uh, right. They have differing politics, too. Uh, and, there are a lot uh, fewer George Soros's, though, I must add. Well, in the, in the age of technical billionaires, uh, it's not quite as clear as perhaps it once was. Mm-hmm. Um, but the gap, the economic gap, between the top 1% and the rest of us has been growing over time. I think I saw a figure recently that said we're we're... We're as unbalanced economically as we were in the 1890s before the progressives, Theodore Roosevelt, and then leading up through where we now are, began to bring government to the stage of exercising some constraint over the standard oils of the world and the like. Um, Well, we're headed back that way if 
you know, if if money is speech, which is strange to me, but I guess that's the equation. If corporations are 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 people, um, and living in a world where the largest corporations have that kind of impact, uh, and government is disabled to deal with them, is not pleasant. So just in closing then, Peter Strauss, it's been said that sunlight is the best disinfectant. So what do you see needs to be done as a follow-up to this New York Times article, which has alarmed a lot of people, including me, and I guess you too, to make the public aware of these plans to alter the very nature of our government and give presidents enormous power? I expect the next presidential campaign and a whole lot of Senate campaigns uh, will be doing the best they can to uh, do that. Uh, and um, I, I don't know of any soapbox that is better placed than that. Uh, and then the question will be whether people are persuaded by it or feel threatened by it or not. That, that, uh, that, that people in the, who are not in the top 1%, that are getting the benefit of tax breaks and the like are continuously voting for Republicans, that the Republican Party has become, in some sense, the party of the underpaid in significant respects is another mystery to me. Um, but it's there, and uh, one, one has to reach those folks. Well, we will see whether the American people vote for fascism or vote for the protection and continuation of the American Constitution, and I appreciate you joining us here today, Peter Strauss. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Strauss, who's the Betts Professor of Law Emeritus at Columbia Law School, where he taught constitutional law, regulation, administrative law, and public policy for over four decades. He spent three years as an attorney in the office of the Solicitor General, served as the first general counsel of the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and is the author of the award-winning essay, Overseer, or The Decider, The President in Administrative Law. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking further into what it would mean if Trump controlled the IRS, the FDA, the FTC, EPA, etc., and most importantly, the DOJ, and who would benefit from the deconstruction of the administrative state. And now, a word from the President. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster, getting voted into the White House. Everything looking good to the people of the world, but family is my boss. The voters of the world keep supporting me, and I promise to take you very far. Other mothers better not upset me, or I'll send a million troops to die at war. To all you Republicans that help me to win, I sincerely like to thank you. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Aziz Huck, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in the Time of Terror, and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aziz Huck. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Aziz. And there's an alarming article in Monday's uh, New York Times, Trump and allies forge plans to increase presidential power in 2025. And it reveals this project 2025, a $22 million presidential transition operation that's underway, largely staffed by former Trump people like Stephen Miller, but under the, uh, the roof, if you will, of the Heritage Foundation. And they really want to give the president inordinate political power, particularly over the government bureaucracies and the civil servants themselves. And this would mean that you'd have Donald Trump, if he's elected next year, completely controlling the IRS, the FDA, the FTC, the EPA, and a lot of other agencies, the most important of which, I guess, or the most alarming of which would be the Department of Justice. So could this nightmare really happen? I I think it's useful to step back and uh, just explain uh, a little about the structure of the federal administrative uh, state uh, to help put perspective on this story. Uh, The 
the federal government, as many people know, is made up of many, many different kinds of entities. Uh, some of these uh, entities, departments or agencies, are under relatively direct control of the president. There, there's a, a cabinet-level uh, appointee uh, who is a secretary of the relevant department, and that secretary uh, uh, sits at the pleasure of the president and more or less does the president's direct bidding. But there are also elements of the federal government that, as a matter of statute, are insulated from uh, direct presidential control uh, in one way or another. Uh, the most important of these are called uh, independent uh, agencies. And, and they're, they're agencies uh, like the, the Federal Reserve, uh, although there are, there are several others, where there are sound policy and legal reasons for having a, a measure of separation from direct uh, political control. Uh, in other cases, there are, there are statutes that limit uh, the amount of or the kind of control that an uh, elected official can exercise with respect to a given department or agency. So, for example, there is a federal statute that makes it a crime for an elected official or somebody he or she directs to request that the IRS conduct an audit or an investigation into a particular person, that the IRS is not an independent agency, but that criminal statute makes it importantly independent. Uh, so th there's, there's a range of ways, in other words, in which uh, the, the Congress, using what is unquestionably its authority under Article 1 to structure uh, our federal government, has, has insulated certain elements of government from politics. The core of the, uh, of the, of the proposal that uh, the Heritage Foundation has worked up and that was publicized yesterday by the Trump campaign is to do away with almost or perhaps all of those restraints on political influence from the White House on various parts of the administrative state. And one can understand this as uh, serving two goals. The first goal is that uh, conservatives have uh, long uh, chafed at their inability while they've had a Republican president in office to utterly dismantle the federal administrative state to the point where, as Grover Norquist once said, it can be drowned in a bathtub. Uh, and second, uh, this proposal speaks to President Trump's desire to have personal authority over the levers of the state, particularly when it comes to using those levers against his political uh, enemies. Um, it, it, I think it is, in my view, clear that this plan would, uh, trend, would, would, would run over several uh, legal and constitutional red lines. Uh, most importantly, the statutes that guarantee insulation in one way, shape, or form, uh, to my mind, are unquestionably uh, valid. And these statutes would would often, or or in many cases, have to be disregarded by what the federal, by by what the Heritage Society, the Heritage Foundation is proposing. Um, but I, I think the harder question is: Could we? plausibly look to a Supreme Court, which has a 6-3 Republican-appointed majority, to safeguard those laws. This is a, a court that has shown considerable affection for the idea that the president should have unfettered authority to uh, decide on how the laws are enforced. I, I think that's really the open question, not the question of whether what, the, what is being proposed is lawful or not. But the legal red lines that you talked about, Aziz, the Supreme Court is clearly engaged in second-guessing, to say the least, uh, government departments. They're substituting the opinions of six conservative justices for the expertise within government itself when it comes to rulings on the EPA, OSHA, and most recently on student debt relief. I think that's right. Uh, but I think that those decisions are all decisions in which the court invalidates 
the action taken by the executive branch on the ground that, that this is the sort of decision that Congress really ought to be making. So those are all decisions that underscore the breadth of congressional authority to make uh, governmental policy, that, that it's really up to Congress. And, and so um, I, I don't think that those are the decisions that, one would, what, that the Trump campaign will be leaning on. There is another line of Supreme Court decisions which involve um, agencies like the Consumer Protection, Financial Protection Bureau and the SEC and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, where the court has, has read into the text of the Constitution the principle which is nowhere found in, in any written part of the Constitution, that the president needs to have control over the decision to remove particular federal officials. I think that the, administra- that the, that the Trump campaign will lean into those opinions and say, well, those opinions show that the president has to be able to fully control the executive branch. But I think that there is a tension between those decisions which emphasize presidential control and the more recent decisions by the Roberts Court involving climate change, involving student debt, uh, involving the the COVID era mortgage moratorium, which emphasize a different principle of congressional control. If the court decides to emphasize congressional control, then much more of what uh, was being mooted by the Trump campaign yesterday starts to look even more constitutionally dubious. So what's then the solution here? I get your point on on these rulings against OSHA and and the EPA and, and the Department of Education that it's really about buttressing Congress's authority, which is exactly the opposite of what's happening here with this power grab on the part of the executive branch, right? But is there any way to really do anything about this? I mean, obviously, the, the, the most simplest way would be not to re-elect Donald Trump, but that's not a sure thing. So how do you influence American people into understanding that this is an attack on the Constitution? Maybe there's a little ambiguity in the Constitution, but this seems to be quite a personal attack, given what Trump has said uh, about the deep state and all of these weird, paranoid, stupid stuff that he says about the government and what disgusting people that they are and how they hate America. I mean, this is very personal to him, is it not? I, I think I think that the the way to uh, read this um, and is it, to to go back to what I said, uh, if one wants to reach uh, an appeal to to public sentiment. It is to notice that that there are these two uh, policy goals or, or goals in mind. One is the conservative drown the state policy, and the other is the Trump weaponize the state against my opponent's policy. And yes, there is some class of the American people or some set of the American people who are happy with the idea of weaponizing government against political opponents. They're the people who turn up to Trump rallies. Uh, They're the people who drown out Asa Hutchinson when he tries to talk at a political rally, as happened last week. But that group of people is a minority and a relatively small minority. It's not even a majority, I think, within Republican voters. And I think most people find the idea of turning uh, the federal government into the personal political vendetta instrument of a particular office holder, uh, particularly one with uh, Trump's personal characteristics, to be a profoundly, profoundly troubling one. And, And I think that if I were emphasizing something to... Uh, One part of the plan that I think is particularly publicly repugnant and particularly inconsistent with the Constitution scheme of democratic government, I think it would be that element, that the idea that that this is really a way of turning. The the reason that this is appealing to Trump individually is likely that it enables him to turn the federal government into an instrument of personal uh, vendetta settling. But just to go back to the thrust of what this plan is, who does it benefit? I think that one thing that you would see uh, is that 
um, it were something like this to be done, um, you would see uh, the White House using its new, its new, newly claimed authority to freeze or to do away with regulations that protect the American people uh, by imposing checks on uh, companies that produce environmental harms or harms to consumers in the form of fraud or uh, the abuse of trust. I think that you would see immediate uh, gains to companies that uh, benefited, in other words, from uh, dramatically rolling back regulation that's intended to protect people. So absolutely, there would be there would be winners outside the White House to a plan of this kind, and there would be losers, and the losers would be the vast majority of people who are protected by our health, safety, financial protection, uh, and other uh, laws. So, in other words, would this be a, a gift to the plutocracy? I, I think it would be a um, it would it would certainly have upward redistribution effects. It would certainly make particularly uh, firms wealthier and and impoverish or burden uh, individuals who are at risk of being uh, of experiencing environmental health safety um, workplace or financial spillovers from um, firm behaviour. So is this then, you know, without getting too conspiratorial, is this then a plan that is hatched by those who would benefit from weakening the government's ability to regulate big business? I mean, I, I know the Koch brothers are the poster boys for demonization, but let's use them as an example. That, well, there's only one of them left. Would it benefit the Koch brothers? And so in other words, is it a, is it a combination of people like the Koch brothers who want to get government off their back, as Ronald Reagan used to say, finding a vehicle via Trump's personal animosity towards his enemies and, and the, the deep state and the enemies of the people, such as the press. Is that what it is, a coalition of, uh, of sorts? Well, I, I, we, don't, we don't have access, of course, to the process by which this plan was generated beyond what's been reported in the press. But I think that the idea that this is... This is a, a project that satisfies both the personal political instincts of uh, former President Trump and also the, uh, the financial interests of uh, a large class of regulated industries is completely plausible. And I think it is worth remembering that looking back over the history of uh, moments at which democracy has collapsed in the past, um, often there have been alliances between uh, backsliding figures or parties on the one hand and uh, uh, members of the commercial or the industrial class on the other hand who've benefited from the weakness of democracy uh, or the weakening of democracy and the increased inability uh, of people who uh, benefit from regulation of being able to claim uh, that regulation through democracy. Well, I thank you for joining us. And uh, we didn't even get to talk about the big story today, uh, which is that Trump has said that he is now a target of the January the 6th uh, investigation with uh, special counsel Jack Smith, and he expects to be arrested soon. So uh, we'll talk another day, I guess. <laughs> No, no shortage of news ever, right? Right. I thank you for joining us, Aziz. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian, for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Aziz Huck, who is a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappeared by hell.